Listen up or run for cover. Dropping knowledge from the people who have it to the people who need it. The, the real Bradley Bombs is dropping. What it is, Brad Lee back again with another episode of Dropping Bombs. Today, folks, in the studio, I've got a real treat for you. You may or may not have heard of this individual. He's an author, public speaker, founder, and CEO of Echo Group Consulting, Major Scott Husing. Husing. Nailed it. Major Scott Husing. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me in, man. And folks, if you guys aren't following him, he wrote a book called Echo and Ramadi. He was obviously a major in the United States Marine Corps, spent 24 years of service. You were over in the wars, running running a whole squadron, or what do you call that, a battalion? Company. Company, the company. whole damn company. How many is in there? On average, there's about 175. During, the, during that time, we actually got plussed up with a lot of support. So we had damn near 250 marines sailors soldiers contractors if they could carry a rifle and wanted to get into the fight they were welcome and which and which several wars just one desert storm uh, I, yeah when i was enlisted i was in desert shield desert storm and then got my got my degree got my commission as an officer and then uh ultimately both combat and non-combat 10 deployments and uh but uh, Baghdad, Ramadi, Afghanistan, uh, and then Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Which one was worse? Ramadi was uh, probably the it was it was the most intense fighting. I, I, I liken it to the Super Bowl of combat for infantry Marines uh, because it was some of the most intense fighting. I mean, it really redefined what we knew about fighting in that city because that was 2006 when we got thrust in there as part of the surge strategy that um, General Petraeus and, and President Bush ordered that additional 20,000 troops onto the battlefield to really hammer down the resistance because these insurgents had been popping up. It just turned into this giant game of whack-a-mole where we'd hammer them down in, the, in Fallujah or Baghdad and then they'd pop back up. Well, Ramadi just happened to be where they chose to fight us and it was a daily fight it was intense firefights two three four five times a day lasting from two minutes to five hours uh some of the some of the fights we were slinging lead with these guys very well trained insurgent force who but, trained uh, them do you think well they they've got their own training uh systems uh, a, a lot of times um you know especially in iraq there were there were other belligerent fighters that would come in. Uh, we had Chechen guys come in uh, that had fought in, in, in those wars. Uh, experienced military guys trained those insurgents to handle weapons. Uh, a lot of times it was just sheer will. I, I don't think it was skill or proficiency with a weapon or tactics. But uh, there were some firefights that we got in where they understood basic fire and movement in small teams and they would try and encroach and then throw fragmentation grenades and shoot rpgs with suppressive fire and uh it, we didn't ever underestimate them i mean they, they put up a fight uh ultimately the marines won i mean we were better i mean the bumper stickers don't say number one for a reason uh but my guys had this 
just unbridled ferocity in which they attacked the enemy. And I was very lucky too, because I was fortunate to have about 50 Marines who were sergeants and, and corporals and some junior Marines who had fought in the first battle of Ramadi in 2004. And those were the guys that really made the difference on a daily basis, that leadership at every level, not just the officers or the higher commands, but those guys at the, at the platoon and squad level that were out there on the patrols nine, 10, 12 times a day, walking the streets of, of Ramadi in this city that was over 300,000 people. And the people were still living in the city. I, I think most people understand this war. The people aren't packing up and going to some camp. Well, we just fight this war. We had to deal with that. So we weren't only fighting the enemy. We also had to make sure that the people living in that city stayed safe. So that was... Were, were the people for you or against you? There were some that uh, were probably helping the enemy. Uh, there was always some that hid weapons in their homes. But it was normally through fear and intimidation of being killed by the insurgents if they didn't do as they're told. But there were also families that gave us food and and bread and hot chai when we needed it. Uh, they provided information, which led to intelligence for killing and capturing those guys that needed to be ripped off the battlefield, cut out like a cancer. They were good about that too. Um, and then we had our Iraqi interpreters who were citizen warriors who had been victims of the insurgency and decided, you know what, I got to do something. And these kids were 18, 19 years old too, but they spoke the language and they were completely invaluable with dealing with the local populace. And we, we could not have done it without it. And I'm one of the real success stories is two of my interpreters are now American citizens. Uh, we got them back over here and they're two of the most successful guys I've, I've ever known. So you were an officer but you before you were an officer, you were also just straight up grunt. Oh yeah, I I enlisted. Um, I, I you know spent my time uh, as an enlisted Marine, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then kind of realized the value of a formal education because, as I told you before the show, I, I make no secret about this. It's not a first time true confession. Um, I was a horrible high school student, one point two four GPA. Anyway, listen to the show. DM or put a comment on there if you can beat that. But I was horrible. And so I enlisted, and it was a natural fit of being surrounded by all these risk takers that I was drawn to. And But I also realized the value of a formal education. So I hung on my rifle, was in the reserves uh, during college at Illinois State with a, as a machine gunner, and then got my degree in three years, and then still felt the need to serve. Still wanted that connection. So Again, the backbone of the Marine Corps, these sergeants that run the show, uh, hit me up on campus and said, hey, if you can come down and take a physical and run a fitness test, I can get you to officer candidate school in January and the rest is history. And then that's uh, some 15 years later, you know, thrust me into this, the streets of Ramadi where, again, it was the Super Bowl of combat, but I look back, it, it really was the pinnacle of my career to lead and be surrounded by the best that our nation has to offer these young men and women at times that are just willing to sacrifice, leave their families behind and serve. And, you know, throughout all the friction and the fighting and the loss, uh, you know, these guys, um, they really just protect each other better than, than anything I'd ever seen. And, and me too. I mean, they just always were there for me, you know, and they never let me down in anything they did. And that's, 
that's why we won. Echo in Ramadi is the book, folks. You guys should go freaking check it out. There's all kinds of stories in there. It's uh, It also gives you some kind of parables almost, some leadership uh, principles, yeah? Yeah, it it really is. The, the core message, I think, is this power of human connection. Just me and you, like two guys from different states connecting and having some common understanding for you know what it takes to survive and the type of people you need to be surrounded by and those themes are really dropped into the book as far as leadership and team building and overcoming diversity and i think one of the best stories i've got so many stories of people just total strangers that have reached out to me you know again you barf your part of your life into a book you're going to get some you're going to get some crazy and you get a lot of great too. Um, but I especially, guess- especially your life, like dude, 24 years and, and, and desert storm and Ramadi, like that's some interesting kick-ass shit. You're going to, you're going to like resonate with a lot of different types of people. You get any nut cases too? Yeah. You get a little of the crazy. They're not too, not too much. And, and I don't get a lot of, you know, negative stuff, some negative stuff, but that's just nature of these, but the, the positive far outweighs the negative. And when the book first, first came out, I got this email. Uh, I love, I love telling this story. Um, um, uh, from this, this staff sergeant, he says, you know, Hey, my name is uh, staff sergeant Phil Morehouse. And I was with the task force. I was an administrator. Um, but I was there the night corporal Libby was shot. And I remember racing across the street to the combat outpost. And I remember that night. And I remember your vehicles coming through the maze of chem lights. And I remember the dust clouds surrounding the vehicles as the brakes squealed to a stop. And I remember your Marines carrying Corporal Libby in their arms. And I remember you. And I remember the look on your face. And I remember every single step you took that night. He goes, I hadn't forgot about that. And I was reminded of it when I read your book. And he goes on, he goes on in the email, um, but he ends it with something really powerful. He says, yes, we made a difference. And so I reached out to Phil. You know, I, I obviously asked him if I could share that story because it's so impactful to me as a, as a leader and as a person. I mean, you don't ever go out and seek those types of affirmations, but to see the actions of my Marines and, and, and myself reflected back through Phil's eyes, this nameless, faceless sergeant that I'd probably walked past a hundred times, you know, in the, he's on radio watch or something, but to, to, to get that message was really powerful because there are things you do in life and what you do on this show. You never know when somebody's going to pull an episode of your show off and it's going to change their life. And you may never hear about it, or you may hear about it five months later or five years or 25 years later. It's like, man, that is what made me go into whatever. Yeah. Being a Marine or broadcaster or podcast or whatever. It's really something I'm grateful for. And then on the other side, I get an email a couple of weeks ago from a nurse in West Virginia who tells me her daughter's dating a Marine. I'm thinking, oh, great. This is like she's about to lay into me. But she's an ER nurse and she says she wanted to learn about the Marine Corps and what the military does. So she bought a copy of my book. And she goes on in, in, in the message. I had to respond back to her. I said, man, I'm really grateful for for what you shared with me. I said, because it, it really meant a lot to me. 
because you as a nurse, somebody who's a protector that takes care of others, you can absolutely understand about loss and trauma and dealing with struggle. I said, but you also understand that there's healing and people that are willing to take care of others and like being able to share those stories and the fact that you reached back out to me just blew my mind. And, you know, I, I had to re- email her back and just tell her how, how much that meant to me. So there's a wide spectrum. You know, you got guys who are fighters and warriors and cops, and then you got nurses and moms. It's just, it means a lot to me. I, I never, I'm very, very humbled by that. It's, uh, it's something I don't ever take for granted. And so now you just cruise around doing speeches, <laughs> you know, podcasts. You're, you got a documentary coming out. One yeah. Of these days. Uh, yeah. Um, Folks, if you guys, if anybody wants to, you know, fund a couple of projects, you better reach out to him too. If you got, if you got some coin, you want to pay back military servicemen, you, you got a couple of projects you might need funding for. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're teed up and uh, th- we're not letting the cat out of the bag too much, but we've got a really impressive team. And um, one of, again, one of Vegas's own Anthony Zucker, who is the producer and creator of, of CSI, he's on board. Um, we're working on a couple other things too. Um, he's, he's just a good American and another guy that never served in the military, but he gets it. And when I called him up and I told him, I said, Hey, here's the concept. He says, I'm in a million percent, write it. So we did that. Um, I continue to write, um, op-eds and stuff for USA Today and Town Hall and Fox and, uh, you know, whoever, whenever I think, I just think it's really powerful to, to share stories of importance of our nation's military. And look, if there's any veterans listening to this show too, I never say I'm the voice of, of the veteran population. I'm not, I, I do my part. I try and help those I can. Um, but the, the minute you stop thinking that you can help you become part of the problem. And I think that's a real trend in America today. Um, so I like getting out there and connecting. I love speaking to groups. Um, I met Anthony out here when I was speaking to the international convention of crematoriums and funeral homes association. Damn. I know I get Most people think, well, what's this, you know, combat vet Marine door kicker. Uh, what's he doing? Speaking to a group like that. I said, why, why wouldn't I speak to a group like that? A group of industry professionals who know about loss walking through their door every single day, dealing with that trauma, compartmentalizing it, and still moving on in life and being successful at their daily job. I say, I absolutely want to go talk to them. And that's, that's where I met Anthony. Um, so we, uh, you know, we got that going on. But I just like, I, I just like being one of those guys who's a connector and we were talking about this for the show is, you know, if there's people that's been on the break it down show with me and Pete, you want them on your show, I'll send an email. It doesn't hurt me. If people get their feelings hurt because I shared their email, they're cut. That's it. But yeah. that's, that's never, I've never gotten an email from anyone who's famous or has some sort of celebrity said, Hey man, why did you give my email to Bradley? That fucker's been calling me trying to get me on his podcast. Says, Just tell him no. But normally they're going to say yes because people love, especially if it's Bradley. <laughs> they're, pro- they're 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 probably they'll probably thank you for getting through to me. No, yeah, that's awesome. You know, I want to talk about leadership because when I think, you know, major, you know, commanding the troops in the war, 
first thing I think of is, man, how do you get everybody cooperating? And, and, and I want to talk leadership, but I also want to get you in a little bit of trouble only because I love fucking picking the brains of someone like you. Like for example, Antifa, black lives matter shit that's going on right now. I always think to myself, dude, where's, where's the fucking veterans? Where's the fucking ex cops? Where's the fucking Patriots? Why don't we just arm up, walk down there and say, settle down, kids, settle down. Because there's way more of us than are of them. I always tell people because a lot of people see the news and all you see is this rioting and this protesting. And in and, and reality, that's a fraction of people. That's a, that, In other words, there's more people not rioting than rioting. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely yeah so it's like you if you think about that because most people don't think that they just they're just fucking sheep and they watch the news and they're like everybody's rioting the whole town's upset no there's actually more people not rioting than there are rioting and the people that aren't rioting are guys like me and you and i don't even want to put me in your category so guys like you and then guys that want to be like you like me that are there that i think if push came to shove you know we'd we'd take up arms and go and go handle business i think they've done it once in utah and they and they're doing it here and there obviously yeah. not to kill people but what do you think of these quote unquote looters and rioters i always i stand by this is you show me a protest in action and i'll show you the sign of a great democracy in action let them protest. Yeah, but that's a protest. I'm talking about rioters. Ri- the rioting is a separate criminal offense. That's and what I, I'm and talking I about. I absolutely take exception to that, and I absolutely support Second Amendment rights. I absolutely support the police. I absolutely f- support first responders. If there are people cre- <laughs> I just took care of three chaos, of my questions. <laughs> they have to be dealt with, and they have to be held accountable for their actions. And it's, it, the, you know, again... The, the people with the least information and uh, who are misinformed normally have the biggest opinions and they won't shut up. That's a fact. So those are the type of people. So a lot of times I always consider the source, but these are people out there creating criminal acts. It's normally for selfish reasons. It's not for a great cause, but I think we've got so many examples in, in history of people that have done the right things for the right reasons and they've done it in a peaceful way those are the people that need to be followed and their examples um and one of the great you know civil rights activists martin luther king jr he he's everyone should be taking a page out of his playbook that's that's how it's done and uh, he made great strides and every time and you talk to a lot of people in different communities every time something bad happens in one of these major cities or even a small one you just take two steps back and I think that's a real problem in America right now, not just with the global pandemic that everyone's dealing with, the racial and political tension, that strife is we have to find a way to be unified. And to be that way, you have to have leadership. So back to wanting to talk about leadership and taking pages out of a great playbook let's talk about the military something obviously i have a lot of experience with 24 years in an organization that speaking of diversity we have the most diverse group of people racially ethnically religiously sexually orientated gender of anyone else in america and we make up less than one half of one percent of the entire american population Yet we always come together singularly focused and 
driven to accomplish the mission and win. That model for success, that recipe for success should be at every level of from municipal, state, and federal levels. We're not seeing that. There's there's something happening here where we've got this divide and it's 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 becoming a problem and uh, people have been asking me like what are you reading right now? Um I cracked open the US Special Forces handbook on counterinsurgency and irregular warfare and I'm looking at this thing and I'm no conspiracy theorist, Brad, don't get me wrong. But I'm reading all the tenets and principles of how to create an insurgency, the things that happen underneath conventional warfare and these shadow governments and shadow agencies from this joint publication. And it's all of these things you see fire hose at you. Create distrust in local politics. Create distrust in the government. Create distrust in the policing organizations. Create mass chaos and riots and all of these buildups. So if we think this isn't happening in America right now, all you have to do is turn in the streets. But you're right. The sky is not falling. These groups are small. And I think with the proper leadership at every level, I think we the storm will pass. And I think we'll continue for another 235 years. But if we if we think we're going to be around forever and not take care of these problems, you know, there are a lot of empires out there, British, Roman, thought they'd be around forever. Uh, I got news for you. Um, every great empire will fall. And if we don't take care of our own, it, 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 we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure if we don't address these problems. Well, yeah, which goes back to, and again, don't get me wrong, uh, protesting, obviously, that's a right to do so. And and I, I would encourage people to do more of it. But when I see shop owners getting dragged out and beat up and some of them killed and bricks thrown through their building and stealing shit right out of the store windows because there's protesting, no, that's not protesting. To me, that's looting and rioting. It's against the law. And I'm just wondering why, number one, why won't the leadership handle it? Because the leadership's standing by watching it. That's the crazy part. So then I think yeah. to myself, well, again, I sometimes I want to, you know, grab my gun, start heading down there. But then it's like, well, that's just me. And you said earlier, if you think you can't help, you're part of the problem, which I agree with. And then I'm thinking, where's the Patriots? Like, when's when do you think that's going to happen? And do you think it's going to happen? Like a militia uprising where they just take to arms and but not but but not a yeah. but not a war and you know thugs i'm talking about just good people that are saying okay enough's enough you're not going to be fucking destroying buildings and if you're going to destroy buildings we're here and we're going to act as the police yeah that's a fine line between vigilantism you know and and people protecting their own private property would you do it i would protect my own private property or business but if but if you saw just thugs vandalizing the main street and business owners getting hit in the face with bricks no, absolutely. I, I, throughout the rest of my life, from the time I was probably born, I think I, we fall into that group of people that want to protect others. We're protectors. Um, and that's a very small segment, of, again, of the human race, not just Americans. Those people that have a, a calling or that genetic or physiological makeup or whatever they've trained themselves to want to take care of others. If I saw that happening, I would absolutely defend them. I mean, if there's injustice going on, I'm no superhero, man. I'm not in the league of justice, but yeah, if I saw someone getting beat down and I happened to be passing by, or if I saw a cop being assaulted, I would definitely jump in the best of my ability without, without becoming part of the problem. I think uh, 
there's a lot of people that talk about doing stuff, Brad, and then there's people that take action. Who was president when you were when you were in? Oh, mul- multiple. Well, because George H. W. Bush, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. So, so then, okay. So, my question is: They started because we never know the truth. The media tells us what we hear. You hear we're we're dismantling our armed forces. Our armed forces are weaker than they've ever been. Now, of course, Trump's saying you know he's rebuilding them. They're stronger than they've ever been. Were you there when when you're like, what the fuck's going on? Like, what was it ever being deconstructed, weakened? No, no uh, not not at the not at the, stri- the strategic, operational, or tactical levels. There's um, you, you just can't do that. Uh, uh, we there's gear and funding issues and training issues that are always tied around it. That's you know uh, never exciting or sexy to talk about but we we never really felt that and i've actually seen despite the size of the force whether it's a a lighter leaner military they're still capable of achieving more with less um and it's not doing more with less it's doing the right things with what you have um and and that's a balance and and again it's it's a money game uh it's it's all about funding the force and having the right size force for the right mission the Marine Corps prides itself, obviously, on doing that because we're we're light, we're amphibious, we're maneuverable. We've got a lot of capabilities that we own internally across the DoD spectrum. I think that there's a there's a lot of smart leaders at the right levels that understand that the nature of warfare, how we're going to have to fight in the future. We're we're looking forward, and if people are worried about sending their kids to join the military, I got newsflash for you they're, they're the best trained they're the smartest best equipped well-led people in the military has ever seen and you know i'm not a generationalist i don't say oh you know when i was in you know i walked uphill both ways in the snow like no 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 these younger generations uh, the millennials get raked across the coals i don't know what your opinion is on them but um i love them i, I mean if you if you think millennials all suck I got news for you. If you cut your leg open and you go to the ER down here in Vegas, who do you think stitching you up in the ER? It's a millennial. It's doctors. Who do you think is in the cop car when you call them or the fire truck? Millennials. Who do you think is standing on the rails of these ships protecting our waters? Millennials. They're capable. They're doing great things. So all the Gen Xers and the, the greatest generation as they dwindle down, if they're not sharing those wins and losses with this younger generation, again, I submit you're part of the problem. And that's why I love, uh, I I peeked up when you were telling me about your, your upcoming book, about sharing your failures. It's easy for me to sit in here and talk about how we kicked ass and blew stuff up and kicked doors in Ramadi. I'll tell you all the things that I did wrong more often than not because I really feel as a leader, admitting those failures, and I failed a lot. There's a lot of things I wish I'd have done better. Um, but to share those with younger generation, I think is really what's going to enable this country to succeed for another 235 years. I, I don't think that's a trend. Um, but again, when you've had loss and you've sacrificed, I think it, it allows you to be a little more authentic and a little more humble and, and share those things. And, you know, I get asked a lot of questions doing interviews and standing up on a stage in front of 5,000 total strangers 
And if I if I can't answer those questions, I can't look at myself in the mirror the next day. Just can't. What do you think the hardest job in Ramadi was? That's a good question. The hardest job in Ramadi. Like if I were heading over there and you were my buddy and, 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 and I could avoid, I could pick one thing I'd never have to do, what would you tell me? Hey, don't do this one. Like a like a like a job, because you guys go over there. Everyone has their own job. See, what I liked about the military is, dude, yeah, everything's dialed UAB in. Would probably be that that was that was the most dangerous job, being explosive ordnance disposal. So these guys are soldiers and marines who enlist. They get trained basically to take explosive devices set them on top of other piles of explosive devices and create things that look like the logo behind your backdrop, like just these massive explosions. And uh, you, you got to be a little unhinged to to do that job. But they were in such high demand because that was the tactic that the enemy used on us at that time. Bombs? Was, was burying roadside bombs and in hopes that we would drive over it and some were pressure plate activated some were command detonated through cell phone or remote device but um when they were found you had to call a human being to defuse that i mean you could drop other bombs on it and hope that it would explode but again you're in a city you can't drop a bomb in the parking lot and hope to not shatter the windows of the local businesses out around you I mean, that happens, but so so. Were you walking around Ramadi like you would be downtown Vegas? We we were always foot mobile. We were we had we had some vehicles. Uh, we had Humvees. We had a lot of support from the army. We, I rolled around with a section of M one A one tanks, which is pretty cool to own that type of firepower. But um, the uh, the predominance of our our mindset was we're going to be foot mobile when we have that many that many Marines and soldiers able to do that. And those numbers that, that I had under my command, when we pushed over to Western Ramadi, I worked for another commander named bear Johnson. And he asked me how many vehicles I wanted. I said, none. So, well, how many armored personnel carriers you want? I said, none. He says, well, how are you going to get around the city using? I said, well, I'm going to walk. I said, we're going to have teams of Marines popping out every corner, patrolling every street, alley house room that they can hide in we're going to scare the living shit out of these insurgents and we're going to kill them i said that's how we're going to establish firm bases in the city he kind of looked at me like that was crazy but that's that's the mindset of traditional marine infantry is you you have to do the work and that's what it took and the marines understood that there's a higher risk at doing that but there's also ways to mitigate those risks and, and one of the ways we did it in ramadi was we always fought at night because we own the night and honestly the the fighters that were there even even the better trained ones they're humans so they're inherently lazy right they want to sleep at night so they didn't have the discipline that our soldiers and marines did so if we had information we'd, we'd find them sleeping we'd wake them up and wake them up with bullets nah, no i mean we we got plenty of, plenty of firefights at night but um normally we just we just find them in a weapons cache what with, if what if they hold their hands up yeah, plenty of them did. Um, and you, and, uh, yeah, they just roll over. But do you have rules like you can't just yeah, shoot them? Absolutely, R- uh, rules of engagement at every every level. Um, who, who enforces those? The commanders do, and the leaders do at every level. Um, and you've always got people in your uh, 
in your organization they're going to break the rules um there's always going to be investigations for people that break the rules um, i was no exception um you know we had investigations for detainee abuse you know once we had them in our custody um you know maybe they got too handsy with them or um, but you know again you talk about having a tough job being in the infantry is a tough job because this is an 18 19 year old kid who's now responsible for another human life transporting him from the battlefield who was probably just getting shot at by the same guy back to a holding area back to a jail which is this makeshift you know jail in the in the middle of nowhere um did, and, people, did, did people ever come and try to break those people out no they they were on camps so it was it was pretty tough to break them out but uh these young kids we were asking them to do a lot they weren't trained prison guards they weren't corrections officers so you have to do the best and you just have to really supervise them and understand that they're ultimately responsible for someone's life and when you put the cuffs on someone um you know there's a lot of stories circulating even the war in iraq and afghanistan oh well they're an insurgent they should die anyway it's like no man they're they're human beings i'm not saying i again had oozing compassion love for these guys who were trying to kill me i like i didn't like getting shot at by these guys i'm not like to think i'm a pretty decent guy why are people shooting at me i don't enjoy that but once you own that other human life you have to take responsibility for it Um, because that's what separates us from the evil that's what makes us great it's no different than the police violence we're seeing in america uh you know and and the george floyd incident you talk to any cop there's no one that hates a bad cop worse than a good cop and once the cuffs are put on someone you have to handle that life responsibly and anyone that's got kids or close family to think that that would be acceptable for them if they were wrongly accused of a crime i think um you know you, you'd want that same type of treatment and and that was no different in combat um, yeah and that's well, pro- that's probably one of the things too is uh, i most most quoted on is you, you don't have to be in combat to be effective there's no such thing as combat leadership just leadership it doesn't matter if you're getting shot at or blown up you either lead or you do not lead yeah well, I was gonna, when I when I got to the leadership portion, my thought is, you know, in a war, you would think, you know, bullets are flying, people listen, or you get killed. So it's much easier to lead in a war because everybody's trained. Number one, number two, they know, you know, you don't listen, you get killed. But when you're running a business, you know, I believe what you just said, which the principles that apply here apply here. I just think here you're going to die here you're going to go out of business which is business death but they're not trained as well as the military so like to me leading a group of 500 employees it's not as dangerous but it seems to be harder in my mind why the lack of training the lack of discipline like the military is trained and disciplined and chain of command and like you know better in a in an employee facility you're trying to run 500 employees how would you relate those two i think the businesses that are most successful and the the guys that i run into are the leaders who are willing to invest in their people who really listen to their people and i'll tell you that's one of the things i'm really bad at listening to people i was i've got it's a learned skill for me 
being an active listener, being a good listener, which I know it's ironic for a guy that gets, you know, paid to go run the country and speak all the time, run his mouth. But, um, listen, listening's tough. And, um, I learned that through a lot of great business leaders. Um, I got invited to go speak to a group and before I, before I went out there and I was, I don't know, there's like 1500 people. And I said, Hey, what were you really bad at? And that's what he admitted to me. He said, yeah, oh, I started this business in 1978 and then, uh, 24 years. He goes probably about, um, 19. I said, so it took you 15 years to figure that out. And that's kind of normal. I think, you're so inundated with the daily grind of whatever it is, whether you're, you know, writing books or publishing books or being a cop or whatever industry it is you're in, you're so worried about the product and, and producing you, you don't ha- have those people around you sometimes that make you understand what's most important. So this guy who's very successful shared this with me and looking back at my own career in the Marine Corps, I thought, you know what? I was probably a horrible listener too. I, there were definitely times where I should have been listening more and taking advice from people that even if they're younger than me or less experienced than me, that that's one of the things that I feel is most valuable um, is I continue to learn as a lifelong learner and surround myself with, with smart people. And uh, I never want to be the smartest guy in the room ever. <laughs> you know, there was a guy you probably know who I'm talking about, but he said, and I didn't agree with him at first. He said, there are no bad teams, just bad leaders. You know who I'm talking about? I don't know. I don't know who to attribute that quote to. Well, I don't know if he made it up either, but he says it. And I sat there right here in the green room and kind of argued with him a little bit because I don't, I didn't agree. I'm like, nope, not even, not, not true. I can prove it. Why? Well, because I got a bad team in, in this case. And he started explaining it. And once I read his book, I, I said, basically, dude, now I get what you mean, which ultimately boiled down to the truth. Like there is no bad team, only bad leaders. Because if you have a bad team, it's the leader that that is allowing it to be bad. Correct? I, I, I would I would tend to agree with that. And you could use most people listen would probably have some sports analogy and you, you see the post game interviews and the players get up there and they start bashing all the other players. And it's usually a common theme that they say, yeah, we're just not synced up. We're not clicking. It's like, well, who's responsible for that? There's one person, the coach or the key player, the team captain that sets the tone that really inspires and drives people to be successful or win. That's, that's your job as a leader and you have to find a way to do that. So I, I would, I would tend to agree with that. I think it's really applicable in the sports sports community, but in business as well. Um, Definitely in business. Absolutely. But I would have argued till I was blue in the face, but then I started to learn to listen a little more. I actually read his book and then I fully got what he was saying. Cause I would have, I would argue forever because like I have a couple people over here, you know, they're, they're not very good. And this guy kind of sucks and that guy, but I'm, but they're on my team. I've allowed them to suck. I've allowed them to remain. See what I'm saying? So like when you really boil it down, if I'm the responsible party and this team actually sucks, which was, which was my thought is like, no, that guy actually sucks. I can't help it. I've been trying to get him this way or that way. It ultimately falls on the leader. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because if he's so bad, why are you allowing him to be on the team? Which means it's the leader that's the problem because I could remove him. Why would I allow that as a leader? Because I'm not protecting the other team who's, who's got to work harder because of that. So I, I, if you have a bad team, you're a bad leader, right or wrong? Because when you boil it down, that's what I was doing. When you boil it down, it's 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 ultimately true. If you're if you're in a position to to make make changes and 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 you don't and provide resources and you don't, yeah, you're you're a bad leader. Yeah, you're the you're the fucking problem. Yeah. And I and I ignoring I did, the problems don't make them go away either. Oh, that's shit. that's. But I'm telling you, I I had to listen. I had to start listening, and then I read his book, and then I'm like. Okay, I get that. And then I started realizing and taking responsibility. And then sure enough, I look back over the last 10, 15 years. I wish I'd have been, I wish I would have known that 10, 15 years ago. I made a ton of mistakes and spent a lot of time, you know, losing when I could have been winning with those leadership skills. Yeah. I'm just getting into leadership. I, I know I'm fucking 50. I should have been doing it at 20, but I'm just getting into it. I'm going to read your book just based on the leadership skills. What do you think the three, like three key leadership skills or, or, or techniques anyone could use to have a better family, be a better leader to your kids or your family, your employees, or a squad. I, we just nailed probably one of the most important ones is listening, being an active listener. Um, what if they, what if they, like, I, I have trouble listening to people that don't know shit. <laughs> yeah. Like what, like what if you're in Ramadi, someone says, Hey Brad, you want to go to Ramadi? You get to shoot people. And I say, and I say, fuck yeah. And I get a gun and I show up there. I'm assigned to you. And I, and I'm starting to tell you things. You'd be like, shut the fuck up. Well, I don't, I, I don't suffer fools either. I mean, I, I, I like to think that I can, I got a pretty good bullshit meter and, and sniff out guys that don't know stuff, but listening to the right guys, um, people that are, that have experience, I think in, in, again surrounding yourself with smart people is essential to being a good leader and continuing to be a lifelong learner uh i think is an essential element of effective leaders um some people say reading books on how to lead isn't the best way to become a better leader reading books about people that have overcome adversity in those stories i think are oftentimes the way you develop yourself better as a leader and um you know if and again i i admitted earlier on the show is like i was a horrible student i i just barely squeaked through high school but i i found out earlier on in life that that was one of my deficiencies and general james mattis former um four-star general sec, um, secretary of defense um says in his book if you have not read a hundred books in your lifetime, you are functionally illiterate. And he stands by that. Now, not everyone has read the extensive library that Jim Mattis has, but I'd agree with that. I, I, I beat myself up when I don't read enough or I don't read different things uh, or I don't absorb information from different sources. And I get in these routines, breaking that routine up and, and, Forcing yourself not to get complacent, I think, is what keeps me focused mentally. It keeps me fit physically, and I think it keeps me driven um, 
you know, throughout my, my life as I continue to seek out new opportunities and, and do what I do, um, not only as a writer and a storyteller and as a, someone that likes to speak in front of groups, but in the nonprofit world as well to help those that are, can't help themselves, which is essentially what Marines do. You know, that's at the end of the day, that's, that's what we're bred for. We help people that can't help themselves. Sometimes we do it with humanitarian assistance. Other times we do it with, you know, laser guided bombs. Uh, it just depends on the application that's needed. Listening, keep learning. What was the third one? What did I say? Surround yourself with the right people. Yeah, life, lifelong, lifelong learner, reading, um, listening, and surrounding yourself with smart people. I think would be my top three. And that's that's whether you're in war or in business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the other key component, Brad, I, I, and I've said this before, is there's you know you've got books in there about leadership, and the, the the military has leadership traits and principles that abound, and we we plaster them all over the locker rooms, and you know, there are things like justice and judgment and decisiveness and aggressiveness and all of these things, but there's a lot of things that aren't written in those textbooks that professional warriors subscribe to or that great industry leaders subscribe to they don't teach us those in schools and those those are words like love and compassion and caring because as a professional soldier as a marine for 24 years a lot of times words like that are synonymous with being soft or not masculine and i think that those are really the things that i learned from my mentors my leaders that i was surrounded by those were the really important things to understand and care about the people you lead because i could teach you a lot of things i could teach you how to run faster shoot your rifle straighter attack and kill the enemy uh with this unbridled frosty but i there's one thing i could never teach you or i could never teach any marines i could never teach you how to care if you do not care about what you do it's all worthless in my opinion i'll, I'll say that till the day i die it, you can't teach caring and i think that's probably one of the most important things what do you why, why do you think so many soldiers commit suicide from the from the cart you know the what they've seen and witnessed or because i always wonder like because there was like 22 a day and they did the push-ups and like you heard about a lot of different people your your friend did why do you think they're doing it honestly um for the record i do not have a phd hanging on my wall um i can't do the math on this uh i do know that on average there are 22 veterans a day that commit suicide but those are only the people in the system but we've lost still Still. 22 a day, still, still, every day. Every day. And some of them have never been to combat. Um, but they're not statistics to me. We've lost Marines in my company. Uh, I've lost close friends. I mean, I was just telling you a story about how I rode my motorcycle across country for SaveTheBrave.org for my buddy Dave. And, and Dave wasn't a combat vet. Um, and I don't say that, to, again, it doesn't matter if you're in combat, but Dave had his own struggles and he had his own trauma. And there's plenty of people in life that deal with trauma at an early age that stick that in a 
bottle and they put the cap on and they compartmentalize and they carry that with them their whole life so it's not necessarily things of combat or the military or stress something's going to trigger that which leads them to that 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 brink of desperation and loneliness and isolation where they just feel hopeless and at that point it's too late and you can you you, you could throw them a rope and hope to pull them back on the ship and i've jumped in the water to try and save guys but some guys just want to drown and I really can't figure out what it is why people want to take their own life. And it doesn't discriminate age, rank, race, gender. Um, I've, I've seen it all firsthand. And it's, uh, it's a horribly selfish, thoughtless act. Um, because when they make that final decision, I don't think people have really thought about the wake of sadness and emptiness and, and loneliness that they leave behind for the families and friends. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, but we like to think again, we like to think that we're doing our part. Uh, I'm proud to be the executive director of save the brave.org, uh, for the last almost six years. Now we've helped hundreds of veterans and our gold star families through outreach programs. We're very successful at connecting guys Knowing what we're great at, we, we do a lot of offshore fishing. So if you ever get out to California, let me know. And we'll we'll get you out with the guys and really see what it's all about. And uh, that we found that is just one way of keeping these guys connected. And it, and I think maybe it's a long answer to a short question. Why why do they do it? I answered that. How do we stop them from doing it? Keeping them focused and giving them a mission and and letting them know that they're still cared for. They're still an amazing tribe of veterans and supporters, people like the nurse from West Virginia, who's not in the military that is just there to support our nation's military. I think it's a, a really affirming gesture when total strangers reach out. And when I was riding across the country, um, I shared this story on Chad Prather's show when I was in Texas too, but you know, I'm doing the required social media posting. I'm at a gas station covered in sweat and you know talking about save the brave and i got my phone up and there's some some guy i wish i mean i wish i got his name he's a plumber he says hey man scott i was um i was over hearing what you were saying in, in this thing save the brave.org he goes man it's really great what you're doing he says i i want you to give you 40 bucks pay for your next tank of gas he's a total stranger i said who does that you know there's some good people out there, and that 5,150-mile journey across the country, I, I tell you, in this day and age with everything we got going on, Brad, it really, really exposed the best of the human condition to me. And for for one, it was just, uh, I don't know, I felt really grateful to be able to do it. You know, I, I agree that there's more good than bad. Um, matter of fact, especially in the bomb squad, which is my listeners. So, folks, if you guys if you guys do feel like doing something, how do they help? Go save the brave.org, donate, yep. give, yep. share this episode out. Yeah. Buy the book. A portion of the proceeds of Echo and Ramadi go to Save the Brave, but you can go to save the brave.org. You can donate. I'm never gonna say no to people donating money. But if you have a service or a talent and you want to get involved, maybe you're not. Um, the type of person who likes to donate cash, uh, you can find us at Save the Brave, info at savethebrave.org and send us an email. Um, that's how we've gotten our 
CFO. That's how I just secured another grant writer. Uh, all these people say, hey, I can't give a lot of money, but I'm really good at this. Or what about riding bikes? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that will jump on the the hog and yeah. take off cross country. What do you do? You like get sponsored to do that, or you just did it? I, man, that ride was again j- to honor my buddy Dave, who committed suicide. We went to high school together, and he was in the Navy, and it just really took off because my partner Nick Velez, um, he was one of my junior Marines in Ramadi, um, started getting the word out and we promoted it and just raised a ton of money. It just kind of happened. I mean, we did media, local TV crews from Tucson to Odessa, Texas, to, you know, big shows like Chad Prather show in, in, in Dallas, Fort Worth to Meridian, Mississippi. They all got behind the story because people wanted to be brought together. They wanted to be led and they, they wanted to be unified. And that was something really cool that came out of it. And to raise a bunch of money too was was great. And um, one of my Marines, again, in Argyle, Texas, in North Dallas, one of his firefighters, he builds this kick-ass custom AR-15 rifle with my signature and the book cover on it and Save the Brave logo. And he's, he said, yeah, I'm just going to build this rifle for you and we're going to we're going to auction it off through blackstonearms.com. And, you know, it's just, you're right. It, there is more good out there than, and I think shows like yours and this podcast medium, which I love, are really important because you're the new Encyclopedia Britannica. You're, you remember, it used to be the static thing that sat on your shelf or in the library. Now it's on your phone. So if I want to learn how to be a better podcaster, businessman, or writer, or author, I just Google it. And you get to listen to a guy that just wrote a book or is writing a book or is launching a podcast or is a successful entrepreneur. And you hear how to do it from the expert, not something that was written and edited and published 10 years ago. This medium is phenomenal. And I don't care if you're a startup show for a podcast. You made the best show at what you're doing, or you may be one of the... You may be a Bradley. You know, it's not about what you have on your show. It's about the content and how much you care. Mm. The bomb. What's <laughs> what, what's the podcast you you're hosting or you you join uh, co-host? The Break It Down Show with Pete Turner. Break It Down the Show. Break it down I may have been show. on that show. I may have been on that show. I know I didn't check to see if I got I got to check. Um, but eight hundred episodes. That's a that's ridiculous. Like yeah, I, I've done a lot of episodes. I, I think I might be at three hundred. Yeah, like eight hundred episodes. He's like a pioneer. He's dropping five shows a week. Damn, how long? He, an hour. We usually in a, at least an hour. Is he like full time podcaster? Full time. Uh, he Pete is a machine. And for the record, the ride across the country. Pete followed me in his pickup truck. And he just drops this new podcast called The Prison Chronicles, which is a limited series podcast. Um, phenomenal. He he just packs up. He's like, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna follow you out my pickup truck. Who does that? And Good did, people, man. And did he did he did he podcast like from the road? Yes, it was it was nuts. He was up till one two in the morning, editing, you know, dropping shows, making sure to stay on timeline. He's he's playing like publicist he's taking video and photos of me and we were getting up in the morning packing the truck back up at like zero six hitting the road i was riding anywhere from 450 to 500 miles a day over a 16 day period 
And as these events would pop up from about six to nine every night, we're doing the events. So we get back to the hotel. It's about one in the morning. And then Pete's going to work, dropping the, you know, dropping episodes of the break it down show that we had in the can. So we got some other great guys, uh, John Leon Guerrero and um, a couple other folks help produce the show and do editing. But um, yeah, Pete, uh, he's a machine. Yeah. So in Ramadi, obviously people are dying. Um, I'm sure there's some some kick-ass stories of you know kicking indoors and blowing away bad guys. But what about uh, lessons learned? Like, give me give me give me a story that you really learned something from that literally made you a light bulb go on. Well, I think one of the stories was. Um, I, and I, I'm trying. I was trying. I was trying to pull one out that maybe I didn't put in the book, but um, take a one lot from of, the book. What's that? Take one from the book if you want. Well, I just, a, I just love stories, especially war stories. There's but, a lot of a. I think again, like you know, shooting and and killing the enemy and dropping bombs and you know controlling aircraft is you know that's all sexy stuff, but um, re- really being able to help. The people, I think, was uh, probably something that I learned made me a better person um, because it's a life-changing decision when you have to put that rifle in your shoulder and look through the sights and, and squeeze the trigger and take another human life. And that's that's a tough thing to do. Is it? Um, absolutely. For most people? It, it, for anyone who's not a a sociopath yes yeah that's what i'm curious oh and it may be call of duty because i've never been to war but i always just think to myself like chris kyle you've heard of chris kyle i always think to myself the only reason he was the top sniper over there is because i wasn't over there i I, thought your call of duty experience yeah like (laughs) like because to me i'm thinking a game i've never done it obviously so i might change my mind but to me i'm thinking what's the problem that's the enemy pull the trigger i'll pull the trigger where, where, where's the enemy? Show me the enemy. And by the way, real enemy, pull the trigger. I'll pull the trigger. I have no fear pulling the trigger. I wouldn't care one bit pulling the trigger against the enemy. I've talked to a couple of my uh, buddies that have been to war. They're like, yeah, but once you do, it's different. Is it? The, the problem that we had too was the enemy didn't wear a uniform. The enemy blended in with this population of 300,000 people in this city. And some were good and some were bad. Some were good, some were bad. But I think that was, you know, if you if you ask me, like, what's the lesson learned was, again, communicating your intent to those you lead was probably one of the things I learned going in. And, I, and I'm glad I did it. And it wasn't a regret because before we crossed that line of departure and were thrust into this this city that was literally boiling over, uh, this into the spilling into the burners, this fight that was going on, I got all those Marines together and I put them in a formation and they're sitting on the side of this bunker. And I looked out into their faces. Some had never been to combat before. Some probably thought it was going to be this sexy call of duty experience, but it wasn't. And there was one thing that I told them to do that I ordered them to do. And I ordered them to kill. I said, you will kill. And I'm ordering you to do it because when they did have to make that life changing decision to take another human life, I didn't want that responsibility to be on that 18 year old kid 
who'd never been to combat. I wanted that to be my responsibility because I was a 35-year-old captain. That was my job. And I wanted them to fight with a clean mind and a clear conscience. And I wanted to leave that miserable place with a happy heart and be able to transition back into being a normal person that's not responsible for doing and seeing the things that they had to do. And I knew they would never be able to unsee or unhear some of the things you see in combat like that. Um, Some of the worst urban combat we've experienced in decades. Um, And I say that only because I talked to a lot of Vietnam vets, a lot of World War II vets that understand that what we were doing and how we were operating was, was unlike anything that they've experienced so I'm glad I did that. I'm, I'm glad I, I don't have a regret for saying, man, I should. I wish I would have told him to do this. Because even to this day, these guys who are now still very successful in the military, senior enlisted guys or guys that get out and they have master's degrees and they're making a lot more money than me and they're successful in business. Occasionally, you know, they, they remind me of those stories and they thank me for it. And that, again, I, I don't need the validation. Um, but it, it helps me share this story with people like you and your listeners, the bomb squad, because if you think again, you're not going to make an impact. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but now you can see that having a plan and being an effective leader, you have to do those things. You have to say those things. Sometimes that may be uncomfortable and make those decisions um, because they will make an impact and, and they'll change lives. They really will. Yeah, you know, I had a saying once, I forget who inspired it or or originated it, I don't know, I just say it a lot, which is if you don't want to make the decisions, get out of the chair, meaning in a leadership capacity, because that's where the tough decisions sometimes are made, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, in business, obviously, terminations, getting rid of people, when to get rid of people, you know, they've got kids, yada, yada, you feel bad, et cetera, et cetera. But those are the tough decisions in, in an entrepreneur business standpoint. The ones obviously in war are a lot more tough to, to, to make. How would you how would you coach somebody into making tough decisions? Because I think that's the hardest part is those decisions that you have to make that you just don't want to. You feel bad. You you make excuses. You want to just avoid those tough decisions. Well. Ultimately, bad news doesn't get better with time. I think everyone can understand that. But as a decision maker, I always tried to make the best possible decision with the most information available and never never trying to achieve the 100% solution. If you're trying to do that, it's a game of futility because one of the one of the tenets of great leaderships is decisiveness. Like if you're if you're unable to do that, or you're waiting for people to weigh in with their opinions and comments or more information, that's when organizations, companies, businesses, military units stagnate on the battlefield or in the boardroom or on the the streets of whatever they're selling. I think that that is a recipe for disaster. So, making the best decision with the most information to hand in a timely manner has always been something that was taught to me early on. And I think it's something I applied even to this day as a guy that runs a business of my own and I have to lead myself. That's, (laughs) that's leading that guy every morning out of bed, staying disciplined to 
writing, scheduling, and yeah, I've got some people that that help me along the way too. But that that's a transition most people um, have a hard time adapting to is being able to lead themselves. And if you can't do that first, um, and you're waiting for someone to to lead you, man, good luck with that. Write a book about that. I think there's probably been a book about that, leading yourself first or something. I don't know. Well, being decisive. I used to be very indecisive. Now I'm not so sure. <laughs> After meeting me. I, no, you get it? I spoiled you. You don't get it? <laughs> it's a joke. I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not so sure. <laughs> it's like it's like I was going to go get help for my self-worth, you know, self-esteem, but I, I, I didn't think I was worth it. <laughs> used to be indecisive. Um so one of the things like when I when I try to think leadership, like what is leadership? Like what makes somebody a leader when they're just influential or they have authority? What what's what makes the leader? How do you know when you're a leader or not? When should you say, look, I'm not a leader or I am a leader? Well, it's like if I if if I'm if I'm a general and I say you are now this and you lead those people and you're not a leader, but I've made you one. How well, you can delegate authority, but not responsibility. I think that under, understanding that whenever you're in a position of authority is, is, is something that is, will ground you. Um, you know, and it's, um, it's, it's a basic, you know, Coveyism, you know, there's there's leaders and then there's managers. I mean, you could, it's I don't want to quote Covey, you know, and get into the, a deep dive on um, the difference between what leaders do and managers do. But I think that those are the type of people that you are. I think they're rare. I think that's that's one of the things too with with leadership is you can research and read all the books you want about it, but there's to to each individual person that is led at every level, and that's the one thing too is, I still seek out leadership. I mean, you don't ever get to be, a, and you'll have a general on the show here, um, senior military officials. Even those guys don't stop wanting to be led. There, that's why there's four different grades of general. There's one star, two. Star. Even those guys need to be led. They all need direction and guidance, and I think that that's. A, secret of any successful organization is is having someone always out front directing the fires directing where the mission has to go to be successful at it and that's one of the things that we've we're really lucky is we're always mission first we don't discount people um but it always has to be the mission first and along the way that means making those tough decisions it may be leaving guys behind or firing guys or replacing them. Those are the tough things, but it's always at the success of the mission. So there's a lot of models you could use in the, in the private sector to apply from the military. But again, it's, it's really the difference of, in my opinion, of, of caring about and believing in your mission too. First and foremost, do you believe in it? Are you, do you wake up every morning and you're passionate about it? This is what you want to do with your life. I, I mean, if if I didn't like writing, if I thought it was a chore, I'd go scoop ice cream for a living. I don't know. I'd do something else, but I, I'm not going to sit and suffer. Um, and if you don't, yeah, if you if you don't feel you are a good or effective leader, 
then by all means, again, go go sell ice cream. Not not a lot of decision involved in that. Or, or hire one because again, I mean, I believe if if I can't lead, let's say you had this chart, I took it, it didn't lie, Brad. You're not a good leader. You might claim you are. Matter of fact, that's kind of why you're not. But you're not. I'd hire one. Yeah. If yeah, if the, if the responsibility fell on you for well, the I, dude, someone yeah. needs to lead, and if it isn't you. Get the fuck out of the chair. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to figure out is how do I identify whether I'm a good leader or a bad leader? Because if I'm a bad leader, I still someone needs to lead if you're going somewhere. So I would just want to identify, dude, maybe I'm not the right guy for this position. And now I can just hire a good leader. But how do I find one? How do I recognize one? And that same answer would tell me if 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 I was one. Like, how do you know if you're a good one or you're a bad one? I, use 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 the war. Like, well, I'm sure there were bad leaders in the war. They were appointed incorrectly. They got people killed. What? Something. You could say, oh, shit, that guy couldn't lead his ass out of a freaking picnic. So, like, what were those well, traits? We, in, in the Marines, I mean, we we eat our own for breakfast. I mean, we're pretty we're pretty shrewd gun club. Um the people that are poor leaders that uh, take unacceptable risks, I think, get found out pretty pretty quickly. And we've got a strong peer network where if you're if if your own peer group understands that you're taking an unacceptable risk or you're not managing risk properly, which leads to losing lives because we're not losing product or profit, we're losing lives. Um, stakes are a lot higher. They'll get found out and, and they'll be dealt with. Uh, they'll be removed from command and they'll be replaced with a hopefully a superior model, superior leader or equal leader that comes along and recognizes that, that comes it. Along. Yeah. And we've got, a, you know, plenty of processes in, in place and, you know, a training pipeline that, you know, there's there's always going to be someone that's going to be able to take your place. Uh, that's just law of nature. I mean. And then I notice here you were director of training. It says could be my my notes were wrong. Were you a director of training? I, I was an operations officer when I, when I was in the in the military. Yeah, this is again maybe what what well, what's his name's not here, but platoon commander, company commander, operations officer, department head, instructor, major, comma director of training. No training. No, I was as an operations officer. You're responsible for the entire training, and you didn't do it. it. You didn't do the training, did you? I always did the training. Okay, so the, here's my question for you: because we this is a training company, yeah. you're here to do a drop and bombs, but this is actually a software company. We use this software to train people. Yeah, I found that there were four key ingredients to what I thought was effective training: good content, repetition, practice, and accountability. And if you don't have those things, I don't believe that it's training. But from someone that's done it 24 years, produced, you know, very disciplined leaders and and and, and soldiers, what do you think the key elements of training are? Oh, I, I would echo what you just said. Um, at at every level, from training, um, you know, a marine air ground task force and a marine expeditionary unit of over 2500 marines and sailors to training pilots the marine the marine corps top pilots our version of top gun is a is a 
department head in, in Yuma, Arizona, I think that those, those training practices, one of our, our biggest successes institutionally has always been the standardization of that training. And again, you can talk about training, but without accountability and without verification or certification and people get confused with that word certification to me means hey you learn how to turn on the microphone and the recording device twice per month to show me that you can do it and you'll stay current at that sort of certified level but you can't allow those skills to atrophy but so we're, we're really good about that institutionally is is having a standardized training program and having a task condition standard and making sure that everyone is held accountable, especially the leadership. The leadership has to be able to go through the, the same training protocols at the entry level to advanced level to maintain proficiency, to demonstrate that, they, that you can't just throw someone in there that hasn't done it. I mean, that's just not how we operate. I think that's probably one of the secrets to our success as a Marine Corps as well. Um, and we've gotten better at that. And we were doing that through things like virtual training, simulation, augmented reality, um, all of those things that you can be effective and get better at your job and not have the expense of fueling up a plane or a truck and crashing it and risk, you know, taking unacceptable risks. So we're getting smarter at that. I, th- I think um, I've got a lot of hope that we're going to continue to get better. Are you are you glad you're done? You ready for a new new, like you know, riding and cruising around on bikes and raising money and speaking is not a lot better. I don't. I, I get asked that question often. If I miss the Marine Corps, no, I, I don't. I don't miss it for a couple of reasons. One, I'm still very connected with the active duty component. I'm also the president of the 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 two four association. So I stay engaged with the active duty guys in California and San Diego and Camp Pendleton and and all across the country invited to speak to military colleges and universities, um, NRTC programs. Uh, So I don't miss the whole camaraderie thing. Um, I miss, I miss the stuff. And not like shooting a rifle because I could do that any day of the week. I go to the range and I still shoot and and uh, but the big muscle movements, you know, the amphibious shipping and the the aircraft and you know having those unique opportunities. Like when I was an instructor in Yuma, like to get to get on controls of an F eighteen and take myself Mach one point four. Like only in the Marine Corps would I've been able to do that. So I've gotten to do a lot of high level bucket list items um in my 24 years but again you know i i created those opportunities for myself um a lot of times it, they didn't weren't just dropped in my lap um so i miss that aspect but i i don't miss um i i, I always knew it was time to to retire when i just when it stopped really being fun and and i wasn't not having fun but with the series of you know combat service related injuries i you know i've got multiple you know back surgeries and uh it's a young man's game and uh, i just felt like you know in fairness to those who i was leading you know you have to you have to understand your own 
limitations as well. And, um, and I'm, I'm glad I, I went out on a, you know, at an operational level. Um, so I, I have no regrets, Ab- absolutely no regrets. I was either a Marine as a young enlisted guy, or I was leading Marines, um, over eight years of command time, um, you know, 10 deployments, 60 different countries. I've done a lot of cool stuff, but more importantly, I've met a lot of great people and some of whom are still in my life to this day. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. What's echo group consulting do? Like if someone's listening to this or like, dude, I love this dude. How, how does someone <laughs> reach out and like hire you or get, or, or hire your firm? I, I honestly, um, echo group consulting is my, is my company. Um, it's my, uh, my LLC that, um, I created, um, to c- pretty much cover what I want to do in life. Like, so it's the kind of a shell. I, it is. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm not. It, like you're not necessarily out there uh, looking for high level companies to hire you to teach leadership to their executives. I have gotten requests from everything from teaching people how to shoot firearms to corporate and private sector leadership to uh, speaking on combat leadership to writing. Um, you know, one of the things that just kind of boils over as you become a published author and your best-selling author is people want to ask you questions. How did you do that? How do I become a number one best-selling author? How, do the work, first of all, and be willing to do that. But I've been fortunate too in the veteran community. Guys have written stuff. And so I really don't like saying this publicly, but it, there's no shame in it. So I serve as an agent for other veteran artists. And some of them, I've even been so successful as some non-veterans, I've sold their books. So I help them. I I kind of cut out the painstaking process of being rejected by a ton of literary agents that um, don't want to take the time to go through and and read their work. But I, it's, it's, and it is a lot of work and trust me, I get, I, I get paid and compensated for it, but I like to be able to do that. I think it's something that being in the entertainment business and, and understanding who the real genuine people are and who's going to read something that's right. Uh, but there's a lot of guys. I just got a great manuscript too from these guys who are veterans and I used to crush their nuts in a vice, man. Like, and they, they know it, but they just sent me the finished product after I referred them to my, my, my freelance editor. And when I read the first three chapters, I thought I can't wait to read more. And then it clicked. I said, man, they got it. Like, we're going to sell this book. Like they, they made, it was hard on them, but they're going to make it easy on me. You got another book in you? Yeah. Yeah. Got a couple. You coming out with one? Uh, we're, 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 I'm working on one, um, one contemporary piece. It's not a political piece. Um, I think it is tailored around war and the state of America. Um, that's going to be, little bit smaller a little more easily digestible and then i'm working on another great story of another military hero telling his story for him been working on that for a little while but finishing the the documentary um treatment and the the screenplay that we're working on there is um probably it on the front burner for me is getting that getting that funded for for my documentary and um yeah if there's people that are investors in documentaries and want to get involved in, in sharing a great military story um it's it's there. It's ready to go. Um, we're sending it out to people now, and uh, people have uh, people have, have shown a lot of interest. And 
again, having a guy like Anthony on the team, he he's quick to remind me if they need to be swayed and they're serious, uh, just let me know. And he's he's always my silver bullet. So I just that's a good that's yeah. A good thing to have. He's a good, man, just great person. Well, listen, I know you have another thing to get to, so I don't want to, you know, because I could talk war stories for for another hour, two hours. But, folks, if you guys uh, want to follow Scott, it's Echo in Ramadi. Go get his book, Echo in Ramadi, and just, uh, you know, go to savethebrave.org, see what you can do to help out. Man, I really appreciate you coming today. Man, thank you for having me. It's it, it great. Yeah, man. Anytime it's you great. swing through Vegas, man, stop back by. We'll do an episode two. Yeah. Or a, or, a, or a part two, because I want to talk more war stories. Right on. Appreciate you coming in. Folks, share this out. As always, it might not be you that needs to hear it. It might be your brother, cousin, mom, friend, uh, somebody else. So make sure you share that out. That's the biggest kind of uh, thanks you can give us. And until next time, keep it real. This is Dropping Bombs with The Real Bradley. Subscribe at droppingbombs.com